Welcome to the Special Ed Files. I'm Jennifer Laviano, a special education attorney. And I'm Julie Swanson, a special education advocate. Case by case, we expose what really goes on in special education. Each episode, we open up a case based on real life experiences. We reveal where things went wrong and explain the legal implication. Finally, we solve the problem so you don't have to. Let's open up a file. Okay, let's open up the file on Gigi and the Gaslighters. And no, that is not the name of a rock band, but it should be. (laughs) It would be a great name for a rock (laughs) band, Julie. So yes, so here are the facts, okay? So Gigi was a client of mine, um, and Gigi has autism. And at the time the parents called me, she was six years old. And she had an IEP, which is an Individualized Education Program, uh, which is the um, name of the document that uh, the IDEA, which is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, federal law, which requires special education programming, requires be in place for students who have disabilities who are eligible for services. And so she had a plan um, and the plan had her designated as a student with autism. And the parents were highly concerned about Gigi because she was, uh, she bolted, she had a behavior that is referred to as bolting, um, which is exactly what it sounds like. She would regularly just take off um, in her home, in the community. And um, it happened so often and, and it was rather scary because she would do so without any real regard for whether um, she was running into traffic or if, if um, wherever she was running to was safe. And she was fast little girl. And um, mm-hmm. the parents would sometimes, you know, really have a hard time catching her. And Um, This was something that the parents brought up to the school team repeatedly in every IEP meeting, in every phone call, in emails. It was, you know, something they were constantly asking the team if they were working on and seeing in school. And what they were repeatedly told um, was, no, we don't see that here. And they were told that all the time and they were really perplexed. And and the mother in particular was extremely upset because she felt like, what are we doing wrong as parents that this is happening everywhere all the time to the point where our home life is limited and what we can do is limited because we're worried about her and they're not seeing it here at school. And Jen, did Gigi have a paraprofessional or a um, aide? She did through her IEP. She had a one-to-one assigned to her um, throughout the school day. And um, this was a case, this was several years ago that I represented Gigi. This was a case where um, the school district did not allow the parents access to the one-to-one paraprofessional in terms of communication, which Julie and I unfortunately have seen many, many, many times where the parents are instructed that all communication should go through the special education teacher or the case manager. Um, and there have been cases, and this was one of them, where Literally, the parents were not allowed to, to even talk to the para or email with her or communicate. So they were, Gigi was not a student who at that particular point in her life was um, able to communicate much with the parents. She had some language, but not a lot. And so here they have this child who's bolting all the time outside of school. The school's saying that they're not seeing it. And she has a one-to-one they can't talk to. And they're just very upset and feeling um, very much um, that this behavior could be dangerous uh, for her, not just outside of school, but in school if it were happening there, but they're being told over and over again that it's not happening. And Julie, 
you and I see this sometimes because oh, the nature of all school, too often, yeah, yeah, all too often. You know where it, it may be, and it has been. I've had cases where either a child be- behaves a certain way at home that they don't behave in school, or vice versa. The nature of home is different than school. Right. School is structured. There are supports yeah. there that are that aren't are always in place at home. Um, you know, but when there's such a drastic difference between behavior at home and school, it's very concerning for a lot of reasons, right? Right. And um, and so here's what happened with Gigi. The parents, um, you know, again, repeatedly documenting emails, phone calls, IEP meetings. We, we need to address the bolting. And what they were getting when that concern was raised was not just that it wasn't happening in school, but they were obviously not going to work on that behavior because it wasn't happening in school, which is a different conversation as well about whether school districts are required to work on behaviors it, that happen outside of school. Mm-hmm. And so um, one day the father goes into the school to drop off a pair of sneakers for their son, their other child who also attended the same elementary school. Um, and when he is heading into the main office, lo and behold, who comes flying down the highway, uh, the uh, hallway. You sure um, it wasn't bolting? <laughs> yeah, right. Bolting. <laughs> bolting down the hallway is Gigi at a fast rate with her paraprofessional running behind her, um, trying to catch her, as the parents had experienced numerous times on, uh, on their own. And, you know, I mean, just right by him. <laughs> That's when they called me. Because, um, you know, they were so upset that this this behavior that had been interfering with their lives and her life and ultimately would interfere with her ability to be independent if it wasn't addressed was um, clearly happening at school um, and they were being told it was not. So those are the facts. Wow. And, you know, I have so many thoughts in my head right now on how this could have been avoided. But I, one has to wonder, what was the motivation of the team to not be honest with the parents? And I know we'll circle back with that, but that's where the gaslighting effect comes in, right? Yeah. You know, Jen, there are many times, and I'm sure this is going to resonate with our listeners, if you, if some, many of our listeners, whether you're a parent or a school team, you know, that there is, it is often the case that there is a discrepancy between how somebody is functioning at home and in school. Let's face it, you don't have the same demands at home that you do at school. You mm-hmm. are you are put in a position where the demand is you must resp- you you need to learn. You know you you have a learning prompt put in front of you, and for many kids who might have learning disabilities or attentional issues or a host of other reasons, that that may be difficult. Right? Mm-hmm. There may be behaviors around that uh, in this case. Um, but I, I still have to wonder what the motivation of the team would be to keep things uh, secret and to not be transparent with parents. And I think this is at the heart of this story about Gigi and the gaslighters is this happens often. And hopefully by the end of this podcast, um, you know, we'll we'll talk about some solutions and things that parents and school teams can do to avoid gaslighting. Absolutely. And we'll get to the law in a minute, but I do want to say, so for, for the few people out there who um, maybe don't know the term gaslighting, okay? Oh yeah, we should have defined that. Yeah, we should. I think it's pretty commonly understood at this particular point, but just in case people don't know, 
it's a term. It actually comes from an old movie mm-hmm. um, where um, the character was uh, tr- there was a person trying to make the other person. I think it was a husband and wife, actually. Yes. Um, where he uh, he I think he was trying to make her think she was going crazy by yes. um, doing various things where and then denying that that they happened. And, and it, in fact, drove her crazy. Um, and so, you know, with the term, it really refers to where when somebody is aware that they're trying to deceive you and make you think that it's whatever is happening is in your head. Right. And, um, and in this particular case, and, and I, and I, I want to do the caveat, Julie, that you and I try to do in every mm-hmm. podcast episode that, you know, we're brought in when there are real problems be- between parents and their school team. Um, and we recognize that most teachers and educators are not out there trying to deceive parents and absolutely that, not that, you know, that's not the norm. Okay. So we, we recognize we come at this from a jaded perspective. Um, however, we've seen it enough um, over our combined, you know, 40 something years between the two of us of uh, special education advocacy. We've seen it enough where the facts are clearly provably um X and the parents are being told regularly and repeatedly why. And it's very upsetting because um, parents aren't in school with their kids most of the time. And they rely on the information that they're being given by their school team about their child, especially if they have a child who can't communicate clearly with them. And it is a very vulnerable position for a family to be in, to feel as if there is something that they're worried is happening in school and they're being told it's not. And they later find out that, in fact, it is happening. And, and so you asked a question, Julie, and I think it's a very good one. What's the motivation here? Mm, okay. What's right. the motivation? Um, I think the motivation really in this particular case was that the school did not want to bring in the resources of additional personnel. They had the one-to-one. Right. But they really needed somebody with more expertise to come in and, and help them with this behavior or possibly even consider for, for Gigi um, a different kind of program. Okay. And they didn't want to do that. And, and so instead of just addressing it head on and putting more resources behind this program for Gigi, they pretended it wasn't happening. And, um, and in part because bolting is such a dangerous behavior and a risky one that had they acknowledged that it was happening in school as well, um, they probably would have had to put more resource, resources behind her program. And they just didn't want to, unfortunately. And bolting is one of those behaviors that you don't want to not put in the resources because there's one thing to bolt away from a learning area. Like, you know, you get up from, you know, working on, um, you know, a a skill that you're working on with your paraprofessional, your aide or the teacher, and you get up and leave the, the area for five, you know, five feet away, 10 feet away to then actually leaving the classroom versus running down a hallway, right? And as we see, unfortunately, all too often, leaving the building. Right. These are all varying levels of bolting, which when I'm involved, um, particularly with students who have autism and there's bolting involved, this is this is a term that needs to be operationally uh, operationalized and defined because bolting can be all of those things, right? And there's a difference between leaving the building and getting up from the learning area and wandering away five feet, you know, for 15 seconds before you can get right. the child back. Right. And, and the building itself was pretty secure, 
which is, I think, why the team wasn't maybe taking it as seriously as the as the parents were, because, you know, the nature of bringing your your child to the to, you know, to the store or whatever is very different than if you have a, a pretty secure school building and, you know, she wasn't leaving the building. Um, but let me just say this. The red flag here uh, also was the, the fact that the team did not want the parents communicating with the paraprofessional. Because other than the obvious red flag of, you know, such a dramatic difference between home and school in, in a very important behavior is if your school team doesn't want you talking to the person who spends all day with your child, that's a pretty clear red flag that something is going on that they don't mm-hmm. want you to know about it. And we we actually have seen this with paraprofessionals many times because um, paraprofessionals are, are not usually um, part of the teacher's union they don't necessarily enjoy the same um, protections and they don't usually get paid a whole lot. And um, many of them are, are incredibly skilled with working with children. But I've seen this a lot where um, if, if, if your team is trying to shut off communication between you and the paraprofessional, they may not trust that that paraprofessional is um, going to be uh, towing the party line, for lack of a better, better way of putting it, with um, a gaslighting. You know, they may think that, because, you know, who's the one running down the hallway after Gigi in this this situation? Was that para, who right. probably, behind the scenes, was saying to the team, I'm really worried about Gigi. She keeps running away from me. One of these days, we're going to be at recess, and she's going to run away from me, and I'm really worried about it. You know, those things do actually happen behind the scenes. We find out they happen sometimes. Um, because somebody tells us or we find a record of it. Um, but, you know, the fact that they, the team did not want these parents talking to her para was a big red flag. Jen, should we get into the law? We should get into the law. So the number one um, most important piece here, I think, that we need to talk about is FAPE. FAPE is a free and appropriate public education, and it is what every child who is identified with an IEP is entitled to receive each and every school year. And um, where the rubber meets the road, of course, is that A, appropriate, what's appropriate. And that is um, to be determined on a fact um, by fact, case by case, individualized basis. And so clearly, if um, Gigi was not able to be in school without bolting from various educational environments and was not able, even if she had mastered that skill in school um, to be able to stay in an environment without bolting, she clearly had not generalized it because she was bolting outside of school, um, that she was not receiving an appropriate program because there was a fundamental skill she was not learning. Now, you know, if the team had been working on that skill, and but when I got involved, they began working on it because we um, insisted on bringing in uh, to the IEP a goal around bolting and some services and supports to address the bolting. Um, but you know, if she was if she was working towards it in school and not mastering it, that doesn't mean you know she was not receiving an appropriate program. But they weren't even addressing it in school. To me, that's not appropriate. Right. Anything else in the yep. list? Okay. A few other things. <laughs> yes. Like, so we're going to talk in the rewind about one of the things that could have been done here differently, but it does bring up a legal point that I want to address, which is observations. When, um, when you as a parent are suspecting that you're maybe not being given the full information about what's happening in your child's school day, um, or whether there's a behavior that's occurring there that, that the team is saying isn't happening or whether they're making progress that you think that they're not making, whatever it is, many times parents will naturally say, you know what, I'd like to come into school and observe my child. That's what I'd like to do. I, I'm, I'm not sure 
I'm getting the full story here and I'd like to come in and do an observation. Here's the thing, Julie. Yeah. Not so easy. You no. think it would be a no brainer. Of course you can come in and observe. Nope. Um, it's not. <laughs> and in fact, there are cases around this issue um, and it's really complicated and I don't want to spend it. Maybe we should do an entire episode on observations, but from my perspective, putting without giving everyone a legal treatise about the right to observe in public schools, um, and there are many, many reasons that school districts can restrict parents' observation. What they can't do, very clearly, what they can't do is have an open door policy for parents of children who do not have disabilities, but restrict um, parents of children who do. That would be a violation of a different statute called Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, because the, then the parents would basically be discriminated against because they have a child with a disability. And so, you know, and I've seen that where oh. the, you know, there are parents who come in and they, you know, Oh, it, room. It, right, right. It, it's, you know, it's, so it's, it's having a parent who has a child with, be, with a disability being held to a different standard, right? right. right. And um, unfortunately, we often see this. Um, yep. and, and we and, and, you know, schools can and they're well within their legal rights to say, in our building, you can parents can come and observe, but they have to sign in, they have to schedule in advance, they have to you know, and there are security reasons, there are health reasons, there are lots of reasons why schools should be permitted to restrict who comes into sure. their building. Um, but when it's clearly designed to prevent a parent from having information, that's where it becomes a problem. What I tell parents who want to observe, because a parent observing, in my view, is not necessarily the most reliable information anyway. And I'll, I'll tell you why. And I know this sounds very lawyerly, but, it, you know, and I apologize for that. <laughs> but if a parent goes in and observes and the child acts completely out of control or behaves very um, um, different than what the school is reporting on a regular basis, they are most certainly going to say, well, it's because your child saw you there and that's why they acted that way. They don't usually act that way when you're not here, okay? And so now you're trying to prove a negative, right? And that often may be correct because right. the child's not used to seeing you in school. Well, so mommy's here, right? Right. <laughs> right. So if, if mommy's here, you know, I might behave very differently, right? Yeah. Than I would when mommy's not here. Um, so it's not terribly useful as to what the parent is trying to get at, which is what's happening when I'm not here, right? And um, and if the child behaves exactly as the school says that they behave when they the parent observes, the school's going to say, this is what we see all the time, see? Um, and frankly, you know, it's it's just not it's not that reliable because you're the parent, you're still the parent, and you still have um, uh, a biases about your child. And so, I think if you really want to have information about what's happening when you're not in school about your child, it's it's a much better and a stronger legal position to be in to ask for somebody other than you to go and observe a professional. Um, an evaluator, maybe some, maybe your child's therapist, although that, that also could be risky if it's someone who's known to your child. Usually the best option is a person your child doesn't know who is a professional in the area of disability that your child has to come in and do an, a, a, a scheduled formal observation. Those professionals have training on to how to observe students um, in, in educational environments. They'll be able to take notes. They'll write a report about it it's far more reliable for you and for the team than if you go in. Right, and um, just a really quick word, Jen, there's a real big difference between going in and observing your child when they're in grade school versus when you get into middle school and high school. Right. It's far more trickier, you know, you, you, and, and, you know, 
as kids get older, they're going to be like, well, what, what is this? What is the mother doing here? Right. Or the father. <laughs> and, and, and also when you're in the lower grades, it's more typical that they invite parents in to help in the, in the classroom on a certain yeah. day. So, right. you know, just be also aware of if you do, if you even do want to go into an observation, just how old your child is, you know, can matter. Yeah, yeah, it's a very good point. And, and as I said, you know, that you do have some rights around being able to observe your child, but nothing like the right to have somebody independent and, and an evaluator do it. And, you know, as, as we talked about, you know, and, and parents are given a lot of ridiculous excuses for why they can't. But my, my personal favorite is you can't come and observe in the, our classroom because um, the other children in the classroom have privacy rights. Well, that's just a ludicrous argument and actually has been debunked in some cases because, going into observe doesn't mean a parent's asking to see that other child's educational records or know anything about them. I mean, you see other children when you drop off and pick up. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's just a silly argument, but I, I've heard that one over and over and over again, but, but it's, it's not the strong, you would think that a parent has an absolute right to go in and, and observe, um, and they just don't. And so you, uh, you know, you want to be mindful about how can we get at the information and, and, and why is this important from a, as from a legal perspective? Well, one of the cornerstones of the IDA, of the federal special education law, is that when parents are working with their team to develop the child's IEP, right? So let's get to where, why this really, really matters from my view, from a legal perspective. Um, that those parents were bringing up at those IEP meetings, the bolting. They wanted services, supports, and a goal to address the bolting. The school was saying, we do not see any bolting here, Okay. And so therefore the parents were really, because they weren't being given accurate information, they were being gaslit by the team. The parents were um, not really able to be meaningful participants mm -hmm. in the development of their child's IEP because they didn't have all the information, okay? And you're entitled by law to be um, in that IEP meeting. You're required to be there as a matter of fact. And in fact, school teams are required to document their efforts to get parents into IEP meetings if the parents either won't go or aren't responding to an IEP meeting um, invitation. And so the reason is we want parents to be meaningful participants in the development of that IEP. And um, without knowing that this was indeed an issue, um, inside school, uh, the parents weren't really able to develop that IEP with their team. And then, you know, let's get at the legal question. Does a school team have to address a behavior that they aren't seeing in school? Um, and the very unfortunate lawyerly answer is maybe. Um, <laughs> and I say maybe because it depends on whether it impacts their education. Mindful that education is more than just academics. And also to your point, Jen, that the lack of a generalization of a skill. So right. if you aren't bolting in school, but you are bolting outside of school, um, it, 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 well, listen, we can get into, I'm going to get into the rewind on some, uh, some thoughts on how all of this could have been avoided to, for the, to, to begin with. Um, but okay. Do you want to, shall I go to the rewind? Well, first we have to oh. do the verdict, Julie. The who? Oh my good Lord. Okay. I'm uh, sorry. I'm losing my, my, uh, order here. I'm so That's sorry. Okay. It's okay. All right. Can um, we do the verdict now? We can do the verdict and, and the verdict on this one is really just very simple. Be honest, be yeah. honest. School teams should be honest with parents. Parents should be honest with school teams. There's, you know, it, it, the worst cases that I get involved in are those where there is a fundamental mistrust because people are not being honest. Yeah. Um, and again, it, it goes back to 
when when honesty isn't happening, what is the motivation? Is it that maybe they've got too many kids in the district already um, categorized in a certain disability classification? And if they go over, the state is going to be looking at them saying, you know, what's going on with your numbers? Is it that, you know, a money and resource issue? They simply don't have money in the budget. But understanding that motivation at some point um, is is important, at least as a parent, I would want to know what what what's the motivation. Right, right. And, you know, we did a lot of hard work on that case. We got there, but we did a lot of hard work to repair repair the trust and ultimately actually what we ended up doing um, in that case was agreeing to a different elementary school in the district because the parents were so angry with the individual team um, at that elementary school that they, they, they it was, uh, it was, and, and frankly, once I got involved and the school district lawyer got involved and the special ed director got involved, who of course was unaware of this whole situation until then, um, you know, even she was very open to saying, let's, let's start fresh with a different team at a different building in this district and we'll try to put resources together. Um, and so, you know, um, so now is the time for the remodeling. Okay, now I'm going to actually... So that Gigi could have remained in her neighborhood school successfully. Right. You know, well, Jen, I have so many. And so I'm just going to, you know, we'll sort of go back and forth with each other on this. Um, first of all, I'd want to say that um, the parents could always ask for parent training. Uh, right. Parent training is one of the related services under the IDEA, along with speech and OT and PT and counseling, et cetera, uh, transportation. Um, and parent training is designed for the parent to understand their child's disability and to understand um, how they can help their child um, be successful in their education, right? So don't ever be shy to ask for parent training. Also, parents, there are other resources. Um, it, as you know, in many states, uh, or you know, you can potentially get services through your insurance. Um, this varies from state to state, varies from insurance carrier to insurance carrier, but certainly look into your own insurance policy to see if you could get um, services for autism um, in your home. And in that vein, that could have been something that the parents reached out to their insurance or another state agency to say, are there any resources in my state uh, and agencies that who can help with this behavior? Um, and you can certainly just call um, your state department of education or um, your um, the uh, in your state, uh, Jen. What are some? What's the? Well, see, each state might have a different agency for autism, um, but you can certainly, Jen. Who could they call in the state? I'm. I'm. Can, should I? You know, it depend. Again, it does, we try to make sure that our information is helpful to to families. Um, in every state, because it is federal law. But your state, besides your State Department of Education, there are many um, departments of developmental services. Right. They have different names in each state. Right. Um, Health and Human Services. There, you know, you're going to have to unfortunately do a little digging. But right. there's probably a state agency, and many of them are the very agency that deals that deal with adults with disabilities. Um, that may be able to provide some resources to your child in the home and in the community. Right. And um, one, of, one of the reasons I was struggling with it, so, is that it, they're called different things in each state. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but, you know, ask your Department of Education, Special Education, if you don't know what they are in your state, um, what these agencies are, and they should be, be able to help you. That's um, a good tip, Julie. 
Um, the, the other thing that, you know, as we alluded to when we were talking about the, the law that could have been done differently here, other than just being honest with each other, is the parent could have when they were really just very suspicious that this must be happening in school, because how can it be happening everywhere else all the time and not happen, you know, in, in school? Um, they, they could have asked to have an independent person come in and observe Gigi in school and um, scheduled that and asked the school team to either support that through the IEP or they themselves could have um, gone and, and hired an outside person to go in and observe her um, to try to figure out whether, in fact, um, this was happening in school. Um, you know, those independent evaluations, which we talk about all, uh, often, are really important um, to have some third party who is not employed by the school uh, take a look at your child and either evaluate them or perhaps do a formal observation that would have been a helpful tool to them. Right. Um, another thing, Julie, some data collection. The parent could have asked that um, the paraprofessional take data on this behavior. Now, they were saying it wasn't happening. So <laughs> unfortunately, you know, I think that would have been a dead end for them until they got somebody outside involved. Um, but you know, if, if the, your team is acknowledging a behavior, but maybe is saying it's not happening to the extent you're seeing it, ask for some data collection. Right. And on that note, Jan, to further um, go down that road, speaking of the para, um, what could have been also done to avoid bringing in someone like Jen or, or an advocate is through the IEP process, define the role of the para on in black and white on paper. So now if you define the role, well, is it just for academic support or is it also to keep the child safe, right? right. So if, if, you know, I see this oh so often that a child has a para or an aide, but it's never defined. And so I've learned through my years, define the roles of some of the support people because it's, it's, it's great for the school team. It's great for the parents because now everybody is on the same page as to what is the actual role of this person. So that could have been very helpful. That's um, great advice, it, 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 it leads me to say, Jen, did we answer the question from a legal perspective if a parent should be blocked from speaking with a para? You're reading my mind, Julie. I was just about to, to get into that. So yeah, that's another thing that could have been done differently here. And then let's talk about the law on it. Um, so absolutely one of the things that should have been done differently here is the parents should have had access to the paraprofessional to communicate with, with her um, so that they could understand what was happening in school. In Connecticut, so, um, you know, the IDEA is federal law. It applies to every single state in the United States as well as the U.S. territories. School districts have to follow it. Um, but your state also can, and many do, uh, enact its own legislation that goes above and beyond their obligations um, federally. And so one of the things we did in Connecticut with our state organization um, uh, that Julie and I are very involved in is um, we've we've been proactive about getting some state legislation passed that protects parents. And one of the things that, that was passed in Connecticut several years ago was a law that says that a parent has a right under state law in Connecticut to ask that their child's one-to-one um, -one paraprofessional be invited to the IEP team. Um, and, and that was really helpful because parents, you know, began asking and requesting that they be at that meeting, which pr pretty regularly they were being told, no, we won't have that person and we won't invite that person, which begs at a, a, a federal legal question. Parents do have a right to invite people to the, their child's IEP team. And while I never, you know, took a case all the way up to litigation on this point, 
when, when school districts have refused to make school personnel available for an IEP meeting that we've requested be there, I think that's a violation of federal law because a parent has a right to ask um, and invite people to the meeting. And if they want to invite the para in any state, in my opinion, if they want the para to be there, they should be entitled to do that. Now, parents should be flexible. What that means is that during the meeting, your child isn't going to have their one-to-one in all likelihood unless they have a good backup. And I and I do say, you know, they sh- schools should have a backup anyway because people get sick or call out, um, go on vacation, et cetera. So they should have a plan B in any event. But I do say to parents, I wouldn't, you know, die on the hill of insisting that um, your child have a para during that time. Maybe you want to agree that you have the meeting after school or something so that they don't have to arrange for coverage. But I, as far as I'm concerned, a parent should have a right to have that para at the meeting. And um, and I think they should have a right to communicate with that person. I, I think a school could legally put some restriction on it, like, you know, a weekly phone call or a weekly email or, even you know, with with a, a Even with a special education, a special educator, in like in, present as well. Um, sure. I, I think what sometimes schools may fear is that if that because the para is not a state approved, you know, special education person, um, you know, certified special educator or regular educator, um, that th- their their status um, on the team is such that they should not be the main communicator with the parent. I get um, that. And, and there's some legitimacy to that, right? And so there are levels, right? There's one thing to be totally cut off from speaking with this person. Mm-hmm. And yet I think what should also be laid out in the IEP is, well, what are the rules of the road for communicating with the para? So that, mm-hmm. e- that, so that there's some reasonableness to what the expectations are. Right. Um, and, you know, speaking, Jen, of also operationally defining things, Let's say that once we we talk about, um, I think what what needed to also be, to, that could have been done on the record with the parents prior to getting you involved, is defining bolting, right? And to what I said earlier, you know, at, outside of school, and you could put this under parent input and concerns. This it's another very important part of what you're entitled to do on the record is to state what your concerns are and what your input is. Even if the district says we don't see it, you're getting it on that record, right? Because there may come a day where they do see it and you're able to go back and say, see, six months ago, we actually shared this concern. But if there's a concern, here's what bolting looks like. We're going to define it for you and get it on the record outside of school. So if it is happening at school, could it be that Gigi is just, you know, getting up and, you know, walking away for, for, you know, for five feet? Is that happening? Because sometimes when you say a word like bolting, right, in everybody's mind, it means like you're taken off like a like a bullet, like a shot, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so just having some operational definitions about some of these key words that are so central to this conversation um, can be very, very, very helpful. Um, Speaking of bolting, because I do have my own young adult. who has autism, and um, it is commonly known that many children who have autism can wander um, and bolt. And um, my son, who uh, is nonverbal, um, is he he is a bolter, um, and we have that operationally defined, mm-hmm. even in his adult program. Um, but 
I have a GPS unit for my son and um, when he's out in the community. And I actually wrote a, um, a, a published resource um, and you can Google this. It's called Yes to GPS in the IEP. And it is a resource and guide to how parents can um, incorporate, potentially incorporate GPS into their child's IEP. So um, for whatever that's worth, you can Google yes to GPS in the IEP. Excellent point. So um, I think we are ready, Julie, to close the file on Gigi and the gaslighters. Um, I feel like I need to like find a rock song that that heads us out on closing up the file on Gigi and the Gaslighters. But we're closing it up. Bye. Bye-bye. Until we open up our next file, this is Jen Laviano. And Julie Swanson. The Special Ed Files is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. Our executive producer is Dave DeRoche, Quinnipiac University Director of Community Programming. Our producer is Brian Murphy. File closed.